The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by the miraculous Secret Library Patreon. Among other goodies, at the salon level, you can get weekly writing pep talks from me as you support the show. You can check all of this out at patreon.com slash secret library. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 3, The Nourished Writer. My guest today is Rachel Stephen. Rachel is a Scottish writer, video maker, and storytelling teacher. After completing her MA in philosophy at the University of Glasgow in 2013, she released her first novel, State of Flux, described as a sharply written dystopian novel, a mix of expressionistic glass and industrial dust. She began making videos on YouTube in 2015 and created the community project Preptober in 2016 to support writers preparing for NaNoWriMo. In 2017, she was awarded funding by Creative Scotland in order to support taking a three-month period for writing. She now runs the Story Magic Academy, which teaches writers a system of storytelling strategies centered around the plot embryo framework. She's also working on her third novel, among other creative projects. She lives in the fabled land of Yoker, Glasgow, and her accent, for the record, comes from her hometown of Aberdeen in Scotland. I was so happy to have Rachel come on the show because she is a wealth of information about story structure, but also because she ran a workshop this fall called the Writers of the Story Toolkit. And this was a revelation to many people who participated in it because it was the first time I had seen a really clearly outlined way to take care of your ideas and your brain by having an organized place to put your thoughts and put your ideas for your book. So we discussed the Story Toolkit, among other things, but there's quite a lot in this episode, including how to take care of yourself when you may let a project go. It was a joy speaking to Rachel, and I know it will be a joy for you hearing her. Here we go with Rachel Stephen. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I bet you've never heard that before. <laughs> no, never, never. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always fun to have people on who do their own recording process. Like you've podcasted, you've, you're even more intense. You've got video experience. I know, a whole other vector. <laughs> it's like a whole other world. And so I wanted to have you on, but, you know, knowing what you do, as we said before, I think we could probably cover conservatively four episodes, but we're going to try to put all of this into one. And the thing that I was really excited about, you did a workshop this summer called the Story Toolkit, which is a piece I think many people don't think of when they think of being nurtured as a writer. However, one of the things that I hear from students and clients and listeners is that they get stressed out, they have too many ideas, they don't know what to do with them, and they don't know where to keep them. And so you develop this nifty, nifty system to handle that issue. So I thought we could chat about that first. Yeah, that sounds good to me. So what 
was there an evolution that ended up in in this system or how did you end up with like a scratch workbook a notebook that's very much like a bullet journal but modified for writing and then the actual manuscript however you create your actual writing yeah this was kind of i mean i've been as like any writer i've been like refining a process over the course of my entire life um but this most re recent iteration um really came when i started my most recent novel um because i'd been working on the same project for several years and i decided finally to retire that um and so i was very like when you've been working on a project for several years um you generate such a huge amount of material for it and you tend to like try different things and you have like different process or processes that are kind of cobbled together and so when i was starting something new i was like okay if i get to start completely from scratch here how do I actually want to do this? <laughs> How can I actually do that more intentionally? Um, and so it kind of just started from there. Um, it kind of started from me just saying like, what is the least amount of stuff that I could use to actually capture everything I need to capture and keep everything I need to keep? Um, I was really sick of just having everything scattered around everywhere and not being able to find anything ever. Um, I've been using a bullet journal for my, like, my everyday life for several years and so I'm really familiar with that system. Um, and I'd experimented a bit with using it for writing but it had never really kind of come into its own in the same way that it has in this toolkit. Um, so yeah, it's in some ways it was like this big strike of inspiration. It was like, oh my God, I could just use these four together and how neat would that be um, to have these like four like analog tools um, which you can stack neatly in a pile, which is very satisfying. Um, but also it was also just like this process that had been built up uh, of things that had worked and things that hadn't worked for years really. So a bit both. Yeah, I think there is definitely, well, I definitely experienced this, a sort of undiagnosed stationary addiction that tends to run <laughs> through the writing community. So the thought of having something that you could, say, transport to a cafe without like one of those bicycles that has a wheelbarrow attached to it <laughs> is extremely appealing so that you can keep everything contained did you find that it changed the process of writing this book versus previous books to have this in place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm still really early in the process with this book. I've written like a handful of scenes and I'm now kind of thinking about uh, rejigging my outline or plot embryo for it. But um, yeah, and that what you're saying about like it being transportable was such a huge part of this as well is because I, I mean, not that any of us are really writing in coffee shops anymore but with COVID and everything, but I absolutely adored writing in coffee shops and I used to rent a desk in a studio in the city centre where I live um, and I don't drive, so I have to carry everything. Uh, and so having something that was portable um, that I could like, throw together in a bag was like really, really important um, because it gave me the freedom to actually go and write other places, which is something that I love to do. Um, so yeah, I think writing this book feels, because of these tools, it feels so much more 
I don't know, it maybe sounds a little bit cheesy, but I feel supported. Mm. Um, like that's something that I find, like I have a terrible memory. So between one writing session and the next, I often forget what it was that I was working on or what I was doing. And it can kind of like build up as this kind of mental resistance that I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to sit down and write. And I don't know what I'm working on or I can't remember what it was and I don't know what challenges are going to be like you know on the page next um but with this journal I sit down and I open it and I look at the last thing I did you know I look at my last notes my last session log um and often it's really really clear and I just have this huge sigh of relief where I'm like oh past Rachel thank you so much (laughs) um (laughs) um, so that is like a, a frequent feeling of relief that I never used to have Can you give us, for those who haven't been through the workshop, like a snapshot of what you keep in those, mainly the workbook and the, um, the notebook, because I think we all know what goes in the manuscript. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the obvious one. Uh, when it comes to the other tools, I, it all really comes down to this distinction um, between what I call potential metatext and canon metatext. So the idea is that like when you are generating ideas um, or even just thinking about your ideas in this kind of meta way, um, there is two potential states for them to be in. They can be potential as in it's something you're entertaining and thinking about or brainstorming. Um, and then there's it changes when you make a decision that you decide to include something in the project, whatever it is, um, it becomes canon. It becomes something that you then want to be able to refer to again. You want to be able to find again. um, You want to actually use and turn into part of the manuscript. Um, And these two different notebooks are basically meant to be divided along that line. So we have the workbook, which is for everything messy, brainstorming, um, exploring ideas, anything goes. Um, And then we have the journal, which is like once you have sifted through all of that crap and all of that brain junk and picking out the parts that we want to use and transferring them somewhere else where they're easily referenceable. That's the basic, basic idea. Yep. Cause I think you, there are so many potential places to put things. And I think for people who've heard me wank on for years about how I prefer Scrivener to Word because I do not like writing on one long spool of papyrus that I have to scroll, 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 scroll through and can't find Mm -hmm. anything. But one thing you mentioned in the workshop is that if you do use Scrivener, there are so many potential containers to keep ideas and notes in that it can be difficult to go Mm -hmm. back and, and refer back to it. And so the idea of using something analog is quite appealing, I have to say. Yeah. And I mean, I think I use Scrivener as well and I love it. Um, and I love that there are, I mean, I love a container, like it's the stationary thing, you know, it's like an organizational (laughs) thing and like it just having it is satisfying. But, um, yeah, like you say, there are so many different pockets and like nukes and crannies and stuff. It's very easy to lose things. And that's definitely what I did. So, um, really the, the kind of philosophy, philosophy behind the toolkit is how can we, put things in, a, in as few places as possible so that if you're looking for something, you're like, well, I know it's going to be in one of those four places. And if it's not, then it's gone forever. <laughs> so it's kind of irrelevant. That is horrifying because we do have these, I don't know what it is. And I have to believe it's like internalized critic that there's this thing going on in our brains. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea is so good. I'm totally going to remember it later. And then we never remember it later. And I feel like that must be some sort of internal sabotage that doesn't want me 
to make progress on the book and is trying to like woo me into thinking I can carry it around in my brain, which is just a horrible idea. So to have something where you can put that, I think is really essential. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, I I think our brains, at least my brain certainly works that way with so many different things. Like it doesn't matter what I'm doing or experiencing in the moment. I'm like, how could I ever forget this? Um, Like that's what I find in my journal all the time as well is that there's huge things that I like didn't note down or missed out because I was like, well, how could I possibly forget this? And then a couple of months away, it's, it's gone. It's the past is another country, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's, I think we, need to save our brains for actually the creative process. And that by making it do the heavy lifting of remembering, you're really diminishing its ability to come up with new ideas, which is what we want to do as writers, especially writing fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that like actually kind of relates to a bit of a deeper connection with this stuff, which is that, so I studied philosophy in university. Um, I actually did an entire course on philosophy of mind. And one of the most interesting theories I came across there is the idea of externalism. Um, So it's this philosophical theory that like, whenever you store um, memories, information, stuff from your head, like outside of it in an external way, whether that's in a notebook or you know, a computer drive or whatever it is, that thing functionally becomes part of your brain. As long as you have like a way to navigate back to it, like as long as you have the memory that that's where that information is, like there's functionally very little little difference between accessing that information from like your actual physical brain meat memory and then accessing it in this external way. So that's definitely how I see it is like you're expanding your brain. That is so cool. I think it also (laughs) reminds me of, there was something I read and it may have been in conjunction with some sort of Marie Kondo kind of mania I've been in at various points in my life. And it was that there is unconsciously or subconsciously a connection between your brain and everything that you own. And Mm. that if you don't know where it is and you get into this kind of everything has a place kind of like, you know, being in school when you're five and everything's labeled in bright colors, that this is appealing to us because it makes this kind of spaghetti of unconscious connections from our brain to the things um, easier and cleaner. And I think it may be the same with ideas, particularly when we're working on a a project, but I love the idea that just makes the notebook more magical, which makes it even more appealing. Yeah, I love that. And I'm such a big Marie Kondo fan myself and I (laughs) can't survive if I don't know if my stuff isn't organized as well. Um, But I love that. Like it, yeah, I think it's very similar. Like you're, it's, it's like these, these tools are a house for your ideas and it's the same thing where you want to know where everything goes um, so that you can come back to it in the same way that we try to do with like physical spaces, I suppose. And I think the fact that we're trying to make fairly complicated plots, like we want to have stories that are dealing with complex human experience, human emotion. And so I think we tend to complicate things unnecessarily. Um, One of the things that you've talked about, which I found extremely helpful, is this tendency that we have thinking that we're helping ourselves to stay in kind of this maybe territory with ideas. So Mm -hmm. when you're talking about things coming in, like, is this going to become canon or not? That we want to be, you know, quote, flexible with ourselves and leave options open. And that by not simplifying it and making a decision, we maybe aren't helping ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is something that I, I love this concept. Um, and I have this kind of like meant this image, I suppose, of this switch, which has three toggles. The middle one is maybe, and then you've got yes or, or no on either side. And I think, yeah, what you're saying is exactly right, is that as writers, a lot of us um, leave the switch on maybe because we think, oh, it's good to have the option to decide later on. Um, I don't have to make this decision right now, so I'll just leave it on maybe, and that's helpful. Um, I always, I think that for the most part, if you know that this is a decision that needs to be made at some point, like if it's like a relevant decision, then you want to move it, move that switch from either to either yes or no as quickly as possible, because that that decision then becomes part of a foundation for the, all the future decisions that you'll make for that project. Um, and this is something that I kind of learned the hard way with my first novel, which is that there were so many pieces of really important information where I left the switch on maybe. And I think the example I used uh, when we spoke about it before was, um, I didn't know what city like what world this story was taking place in. I didn't know if it was like an alternate world, if it was the real world, but in the future. Um, I didn't, like for most of writing that novel, I didn't have any idea what the city was, what country it was in. Was it a fictional country? Was it an alternate version of a real country? Um, and it made, I think it really harmed that book because then I couldn't be specific about, well, what is this culture like? What language are people speaking? Um, all of these decisions, just because I was afraid of moving the switch off, maybe, essentially. Um, and obviously that's, that's a quite an extreme example, but it happens, I think, with much smaller areas as well, where you delay making a decision and then you then have to write around the gap where that information should be because it's not nailed down yet. Yeah, I think we do it out of a place of like a lack of, confidence or a lack of certainty. And we think that we have to be 100% certain in order to move it off of maybe. But I did the mm -hmm. same thing. It wasn't with the world. It was, I wrote, I think I'm on, I'm about to finish revising this book. And I wrote at least two drafts where the love interest, I was not clear about what his job was, which was a relatively, mm -hmm. it was a somewhat minor thing, but I knew it wasn't right. And so I had one where he was like uh, owned a bicycle shop or something. And I think I had one where he was like driving a cab and also owned the bicycle shop. It was ridiculous. And one of them, I was like, this is wrong. So I wrote a draft where I had, it was just maybe. It was like, okay, I don't know what his job is. And I just didn't reference his job at all. And he was mm -hmm. always around and always available. And it just killed the tension. And what I have found, and I don't know if this is the same for you, is that even if I get it wrong, it's easier for me to, then replace a decision where I took it off maybe and said yes to something that I later realized was wrong than it is to fix something that's been on maybe the whole time. Like that draft where he was doing nothing was ridiculous. If I had just left it as a bike mechanic, it would have been much easier to fix that without that mm -hmm. intervening. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. It was super like flabby. It was a flabby draft. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I totally agree is that, that, yeah, that's again, another of my philosophies, which I'm like, get off of maybe because you can always change your mind you can always make a new decision like that's something that I do all the time especially as I'm working through um like a plot embryo or brainstorming or something I will often be like I don't know if this is the perfect decision sometimes you do get a perfect decision and you feel amazing about it and that's like really satisfying to move forward with but it's certainly not the norm um I think 
I just have to be happy enough with it for now um, to keep moving forward and keep making more decisions. And then often it's only when that decision starts to get tested because you're pulling other strings that are connected to it where you start to realize like, is that what I want it to be or could I improve it somehow? Um, I say that you, like any decision you make, you can always improve on it like in future. Um, but that, yeah, I think, I think it's still a lot less detrimental to like make a decision and then have to rework it or make a new decision than it is to have like um, avoided making it altogether. Yeah. I think many people are scared because they feel like if they make the wrong decision at the beginning, then the whole book is going to collapse like a bad souffle or something. Like you have to get it right at the beginning or else there is no hope later. And I found that the opposite is true, that it is, you can do kind of, yeah, this is fine. And then build on that. And it actually gets stronger through the process of being built on rather than, oh no, we've got a faulty foundation and now the whole house is going to collapse. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, like as you near the end of a project, everything, like all of the parameters get smaller and smaller because you've made a lot of decisions now and um, the space to move those feels like it's getting smaller as well. And that can be a really good thing. Um, but I just think that, yeah, like <laughs> those, those decisions are essential. Even if you do, do decide to rip it all up later on, um, that's still better than having written around a hole essentially. Yeah. So one of the tools you also talk about that I think is really important is brainstorming, which, mm -hmm. you know, many of us brainstorm, you know, it's, it's not actually one of my, it's hilarious to me that you can't have a brainstorm in German. They've taken the word, but the noun in German is a brainstorming. It's like, they're talking about brainstorming. And I'm like, I try to explain to them. I'm like, but that's the verb. Like, that's not actually, that's the process. And they're like, nine, this is what we've, we've taken it. We have taken it from English and this is how we take it. This is how we like it. Yeah. Yeah. They just, for them, it's always active, which is, I suppose, true. But mm. I'm interested in, because you have a really active way of bringing brainstorming in with really focusing your questions and that the mm -hmm. question at the center of the brainstorming is just as important as the ideas that come out of it. Mm -hmm. So can you say a bit about like your philosophy of how you address brainstorming and where you see that maybe people could get more out of it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, brainstorming. I feel like I will be talking about it until I die because <laughs> it's just constant. Um, but it really, like, I, I just don't shut, shut up about it because I use it for everything every day. Like every problem in my writing or my life, like brainstorming helps me get through it. Um, and so I think the main distinction that I like to talk about is often people, I see people doing what they're calling brainstorming, but it's actually brain dumping. Um, so it's not focused enough to really get the results that they're after. Um, and so for me, the difference between those two things is a magic question. So a brain dump is just, you know, externalizing whatever is like kind of on, it's almost like skimming off like the top surface of whatever's on your mind. Um, whereas brainstorming to me is about a like 
a targeted way of like delving deeper into a specific topic or a specific subject um, to answer a specific question. Because if you're doing a brainstorm, um, it's because you are looking for something. You're looking for a solution. You're looking for an answer. You're looking for an idea, um, something to solve an issue that you're having. And so um, if you just write like one word in the center of your page and you're just kind of doing... Um, like stream of consciousness, like branching off things that are like occurring to you, you're going to get really amorphous results because um, the the process itself was amorphous. So um, the difference to me between a brain dump and a brainstorm is definitely a magic question. And um, it could be as simple, like a magic question could just be as simple as like, what am I going to do today? <laughs> um, you know, but if you don't ask that question, then that's not going to uh, help you get the answers that you're actually after. I think it's, I had this image as you were talking about this. It's like, if you're trying to start a fire, you know, that thing that people do in camping and they put it through like a magnifying glass and they try to focus mm. the sun. You can have just sun and it feels warm and it's nice, but it's not going to get you there. You need something in the middle to focus it down and then you'll get a spark. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you have to know what you're asking for before you start flinging ideas all over the place. Because if you just put today down, well, you might put all the things that you're stressed out about today and not actually figure mm-hmm. out what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think, I think I've definitely used that metaphor of a prism as well, but like the magnifying glass is even better because uh, it ends up with a spark and fire, which is also your metaphor for ideas and creativity. So I love that. Um, yeah, it's really about that focus. And it's not that there's not a place for that more amorphous kind of stuff as well. Like that can be a really good way to explore um, just what's going on with you, what what's going on in the, the mental storm clouds of the day. Um, I think there's still, there's still a lot of value in that. It's just not the same as uh, solving a particular problem or coming up with a particular idea that you actually need. So this is all about finding ideas for a project and moving forward and having progress. But I can't help but referring back to you referenced having written a book for a number of years and then deciding not to continue. And I think it's important for people to think about much like reading, just because you've begun a book doesn't mean you have to finish it. And I'm wondering, like, how was that process for you? And how did you take care of yourself around letting go of a book? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I still, even just talking about it, I do still feel a little bit uncomfortable about it, um, to be honest. But I think, yeah, I'd been writing this novel for at least four years. Um, it was born of a very difficult period in my life. Um, It was a novel about, it was a post-apocalyptic pandemic novel, if you can believe, about depression. Um, Yeah. And I I quit like a couple of weeks before COVID hit. Thank goodness. Um, Wow. Yeah. I know. (laughs) That might have been Um, real, real brutal. Yeah. Intense. Um, And so I think it was just like, I learned everything that I now know about crafting story structure from writing that book. Um, And so I'm incredibly grateful for that process. But at the same time, I spent a long, long time um, not enjoying it and really just like dragging myself through it. Um, And I'd also, I'd completely changed as a person. Um, Like when I started that novel, I was very depressed um, and 
then when you start to feel better, you don't necessarily just want to think about depression all the time uh, right. in this big project. So it, it became this thing where I was like, this doesn't really feel like the tone that I'm actually interested in writing about anymore. So in terms of the actual decision-making process, um, it was very witchy and spiritual. Um, I, I remember when the thought kind of like pinged into my head, like you could actually quit this. Like it hadn't even been like a, uh, a possibility that I'd entertained. I remember I was walking to go and do my groceries and I remember this point where I was like, what if you just stopped? What if you just didn't do it anymore? Um, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Okay. Um, and basically took the rest of that evening um, to kind of explore that idea and weigh things up. Um, so I did a lot of kind of witchy ways of working through things and a bunch of like more mundane ones as well. So I had a pro-con list, I did some tarot, um, I communed with some spirits um, and all of that. And the mixture of all of that just kept coming back to imagine what life might be like if you just feed yourself from this. Um, imagine like the space that you might have for other things and for things which are more exciting. Um, and for so long, I'd been thinking of that space as like, well, you need to get through this, you need to finish this, and then you get to have that. And I was like, well, what if you just gave yourself that <laughs> now? So yeah, it, it was a strange, it's a strange thing to do and to talk about. And especially because like my writing life is so public, it's very strange. So like people have been following me for years and have known about this book for years. And so it was very strange to say, Hey, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, but it was definitely, it was definitely for the best. It's so interesting because these points, I think when these kinds of insights come in, I feel like there is such a clear divide with what is coming from sort of our creative self and the critic is sort of how I divide it. Because I have found that when I have sort of new, like, hey, you don't have to do it. It's really short sentences and it's like slightly quiet and it doesn't really feel like it has to rush. And then immediately the, the critical side is like, well, you really have to do it because what's everyone going to say? And you're going to, it's going to be like this and blah, blah, blah. Like whenever I have fears around my book, it's like, oh, this is going to be shit. And then you're going to have to shut down the podcast because everybody's going to know you're a crap writer and it's all over. And so it's like incredibly pressured, blah, 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 kind of energy. But when it's the right answer and it's coming from the creative, it's like, hey, what about this? I don't know if you have that experience. That's so interesting. And I think it, I don't, uh, I don't tend to like, yeah, name those voices in those ways, but I totally understand what you're saying. And I love that, like what you talk about how the, the creative voice is, quen is uh, more succinct because that like the critic of like, oh, these are all these things are going to happen. That's such slippery slope thinking that's like a philosophical fallacy. That's just like one bad thing's going to happen. That means this other bad thing's going to happen. And it is just this chain that takes you down into an absolute pit. Um, yeah. And you're living and in the gutter and it's all over. Exactly. Yeah. Which like, yeah, it just makes so much sense. I think like for me, I, I'm not very good at like distinguishing those things in the moment. I think that's why I have all these other processes is to try and like do it a bit more consciously, but it was similar. Like, so I took, I think that little voice I, <laughs> I kind of attribute to uh, my familiar spirit, nice. um, which is 
kind of like for for those who aren't maybe into as into the witchy stuff who is just like an imaginary friend who sometimes gives me advice um that's the and best. yeah um and so that was the voice it felt like that was saying you could just let this go um and then it was very similar where all of the voices that were like no you can't do that how dare you I, it was all coming from what other people expected of me. It was like all of these negatives uh, or these cons of letting it go were all like, what are people going to think of me? Um, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to put this book out and then get like the, uh, the validation from that and the recognition that I'm a real writer from that. Oh God, the real um, writer. It's the worst. Yeah. yeah. All of that stuff. It is amazing to me. And this is something that I think every writer struggles with, and I don't know why this is the case. And I think it's true of most creative professions, but whenever you shift it to another field, we hear how ridiculous it is. Where <laughs> like, I have a lot of friends um, in Los Angeles who are lawyers and not one of them has ever said, well, you know, I practice a little law and you know, sometimes I go to court, but I, I don't know if I would call myself like a real lawyer. Like never, never come out of their mouths. But almost every writer I know, myself included, says stuff like that to ourselves and to other people all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to be such a writing. I mean, I think it definitely applies in certain kinds of art and stuff as well. But writers, we seem to be especially good at telling ourselves that, like, I mean, all writer means is a person who writes writer like you know it, it shouldn't be this it shouldn't be this complicated but um yeah we make it quite difficult I think a lot of it is uh it's about that societal kind of like platonic ideal of what it means to be a writer that we're fighting with um but yeah yeah I think I mean I think we also spend a lot of time with words so we're particularly good at insulting ourselves I mean it's like we have <laughs> we've been sharpening that sword for ages and mm -hmm. I think the other bit is that there is this false notion that you have to be some kind of anointed special creature who is a receptacle for certain kinds of ideas that like come out of the stars or something. And so mm -hmm. that's why I think your work in Story Magic Academy is about actually replicable processes where you can generate an idea that will support a book. Because the question that people ask a lot that I hear is like, how do I know my idea is, quote, good enough mm -hmm. for a book? And, and then actually you said something in a video that was like, well, actually, that's not a useful question. And I was like, thank you. Someone else said it. <laughs> it's not. There's crazy book. The one I always think about. Have you read um, Notes from a German Building Site? It's not, no. It's recent, it's come out, but it's written by a guy. It is a novel. He's Irish and it's a novel. It came out. It's really short, but it's about a guy's thoughts while he's working on a construction site. Now, mm. if someone brought that to me and said, hey, I think I want to write a novel. It's a guy just thinking on a construction site. <laughs> Objectively, I would not necessarily say run with it, but it was so good and I couldn't put it down. So I always think of that book and I'm like, no, it's not about that. It's about what you do with the idea. It has nothing to do mm. with the idea itself. And so I think this thought of am I a real writer is like, am I a real sparkly, shiny vessel that will create, you know, stardust ideas that no one else has access to, but it's really actually a particular way of thinking and a particular way of engaging with the world that you can learn. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not that, like, do you have some kind of, like you're saying, sparkly gift that was bestowed upon you by the gods on at your birth. It's like, are you, <laughs> are you willing to do the work? That's really all it boils down to. And that's like something that I kind of come back to with the idea of story ideas as well, is that there's no such thing as a bad story idea. Um, anything, like you say, something that as a pitch sounds awful or like isn't <laughs> isn't particularly um exciting or attractive as a pitch can still make an amazing story because it's about what you're trying to do with it and it's about the work that you put into it um so i always try to bring things back to is this a good idea for you um which to me speaks to like is this an idea that you're actually willing to put the work into that to me is the key question i think also is this is this an idea that's good for you in that you're going to be, it's going to be an enjoyable experience to write, like speaking to Mm -hmm. your process. It's like, just because you have an idea that people might get something out of reading doesn't mean you have to write it. Like Mm -hmm. Naomi Novik, who I really like, and she had written a book, she's written a number of books, but one was called Uprooted. And it was this whole, I I absolutely adore it so much. It's so good. And so there was, a, there was somebody was doing a Q&A with her on Goodreads and somebody said, are you going to write a sequel? And I like saw a different cover that wasn't the cover I had. And I thought, oh, there's a sequel. So I went in and looked at it and she said, well, actually I would love to, but the story hasn't really come to me in a way that's satisfying or that I would want to engage with it. So I'm like, okay, that's a real challenge when you're in a position where people are screaming and dancing around wanting a book from you, which is not an experience mm-hmm. many of us have as writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to say, no, I actually, I'll write it when I want to write it or when it's the right thing for me to do. I think a lot of us don't even think about that question because mm-hmm. we're so conditioned to think, oh, we should be so grateful if even one person on earth wants to read it. We forget that it's supposed to be positive for us too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that is so true just with creativity in general. Um, because I think like in that situation, like if you think about what what a sequel to Uprooted would be like if Naomi Novik, or if her heart wasn't in it, like if she hadn't found something that she actually was excited about, how disappointing would that be to like have just this like mediocre kind of like not really connecting, not really working kind of sequel to something that was so great? That to me is, I was going to say fate worse than death. That seems very dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) That seems... For a reader, uh, I don't think you're wrong. (laughs) For a book that good. A bad sequel is pretty close to that, yeah. Um, And it's funny because like my, I have, I do lots of different creative things. And this to me isn't something that so much I come up against in writing is something I come up against with YouTube quite a lot um, oh, because like putting together a video is a creative process and like there's so much um there's so much advice out there on how to like hashtag make it on YouTube and like here's how you should like optimize everything and here's like how to get more views and all of this very like statistical numbers based stuff it's really easy to get wrapped up in all of that and there's a few videos that I made where I made it because I felt like it was what people wanted from me or what they expected from me and they are without a doubt my worst videos um to the point where now where I'm just like why did I can't believe how much time I put into that it's just so pointless um 
And so what I try to focus on now is like, what is the video that I want to make? What am I interested in? And then the way I go about making it, I try to make that for other people, if that makes sense. So I try to um, put everything into it that needs to have. I try to like um, make it the best that it can be and be strategic about how I make it. But that decision of what I'm going to make can't rely on other people because it just sucks all of the heart and all of the soul out of it, um, which is probably a cliche at this point, but... That's I feel like I feel like we spend so much time avoiding cliche in our writing that that means <laughs> that writers are allowed to use as much cliche as they want when talking about it. I feel like I'm absolutely appalling at how much cliche I use when talking about writing, but I'm I've just decided that that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I, like sometimes cliches are cliches for a reason because it's just it's very well known stuff that is true. It is. I think that's I think that's such a good point because I think that the idea or the content of a story has to be what you're interested in. And then later, it's almost like that's a revision question to me because it's like, I always think of the first draft being for me, like I'm figuring out what's happening in this, what's most interesting, what's most engaging. I give myself that whole draft. Mm -hmm. And and then later I, I think about, okay, well, will this make sense to someone? Will someone understand the leap from this point to this point? Is that too big or am I babying them? And so they're going to feel like idiots, you know, because I'm telling them too much. But I don't really think about them that much in the first draft. And I think a lot of people do and it shuts them down. So I don't mm -hmm. know how you feel about first drafts versus later ones. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I, the problem that I fell into with my previous novel that I decided to retire was that I was so focused on what everyone else was going to think about it and finishing it because I'd started it and that's what you're meant to do um, and all of this whereas and it was all about it was all about delayed gratification it was all about like oh well once it's done then I'll get to enjoy people reading it and blah 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 um, and now with what I'm working on currently I'm really trying to focus on and again it's a cliche I'm trying to focus on enjoying the process um, so instead of just thinking about like how can I make this the best book to throw out into the world um uh, books are too big to delay gratification for that long especially if like me you probably have adhd um so <laughs> uh, i'm really trying to focus on on each individual scene that i'm writing how can i enjoy writing this scene how can i enjoy this process because that's the reality of it is that i'm going to be working on this like five days a week for months you know potentially even years and that is a huge amount of my life to give up to something that I'm not enjoying. Yeah, I think we are, it's like our society has, and I'm going to try not to go too far into the soapbox, but it's just one that I cannot resist. It's like, we're trained to delay gratification from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, we are trained to, oh, you'll get rewarded for this later, or somebody else will tell you if it's good. It's like, we're not really trained in our educational system to, well, do you think it's a good idea? Like, how do you feel about this? What do you want to pursue? What's interesting to you? We're not really conditioned to think that way. We have to get our, our kind of stamp of approval from the outside. And so I think it's a skill we often have to learn later. And it's particularly difficult for writers because we spend so much time in the beginning before we get to the point where anyone else engages with it. I was thinking actually... One other thought I had at the same time was that in some ways you may have hacked the system because 
so often you write your first book, put it out, and then there's all this pressure on the second book. And it's, you know, like the second album, you know, all these things that happen with artists. And then you go on to the third. It's like, you just skipped that bit, which I think is actually quite brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the second second book is infamous for being a bit of a uh, shit show. Um, and I think I still went through that, but it was just kind of mostly behind closed doors, I guess, which is, I guess, a benefit sometimes. Um, but looking back, I'm like, did I want to spend that many years of my life on that? I don't know. It's too late to tell now. Yeah, I think it's hard though. It's like when we have an experience like that with a writing thing, I mean, I have so many books that I've like written and chucked because I decided they weren't worth it or I didn't want to do, like one was in really complex historical period. And I was like, do I really want to spend all this time researching it? No, actually I don't. And and then I ended up writing another book set in the same time period. There's like <laughs> no escaping it. Um, but this time I was ready for it. But I think we we always look back and wish the things that happened in the past took less time. But if we mm -hmm. had to give up the experience that they gave us as a result, I think we wouldn't, we wouldn't, you know, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, you know, do that treatment on them if we had the choice. Yeah, I think that's absolutely bang on. And I think that's why I do always try to bring it back to remember everything you learned that you're now teaching other people <laughs> and is now you're living. Uh, all of that came from that book. So can't be that mad at it. No, because I think if, if you did it perfectly every time, you wouldn't be nearly as sympathetic and you wouldn't know what the, the dangerous points are, what the, you know, the, the sneaky points and the scary points and all of the things that you have to be prepared to navigate. It's one thing if you know them intellectually, but I think it's quite another to have been in there. Yeah. Sometimes like the, to learn things, you do have to go through the things, unfortunately. I know we can't protect you all from that. It's, it's not always going to be easy with your book, even if you're organized. I think people think if they have the right notebooks and they have the right system and they have the right pens and everything all lined up, then the book is just going to pour right out. And I cannot promise that. Yeah. So I think to wrap this up, because I'm like, we could go on for like three hours with this, but... <laughs> Where would you say, what was the biggest lesson that you learned? The thing that you're most grateful for from that experience that you're now bringing now? I've, I've instilled mm. terror. I can tell. I'm sorry. <laughs> nobody, um, nobody wants the biggest lesson. That's a horrible no, question. No, that's, that's fine. I'm probably, I'm not going to stick to that. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. You can break it. Yeah. I, I think it's twofold. And I think the first one is kind of what I just said about like finding a way to enjoy the process because this is your life. And ultimately, even if, even if you put out that book and it is like, it absolutely skyrockets and it does amazing things and you have this like amazing career and stuff based off of that, like you're never going to get that time back that you spent writing it. So like, that's the best case scenario for, I dragged myself through this book. It was awful. I didn't, I was writing stuff that I didn't really enjoy, but oh, well, at least I got this kind of like reward at the end of it. That to me is still not like ideal. That's not what I want out of uh, my writing. So yeah, that focus on find ways to enjoy the process. Not everything can be enjoyable, obviously. There are always going to be tough bits, but like as a whole, um, yeah, trying to find that enjoyment in the moment. Um, and the second is just the, it's the, the conceptual framework. It's the, um, 
the more mundane story craft stuff, which is the plot embryo. So that's the framework that I use that I know that you know. Um, that changed everything for me. And now so much of everything that I do with writing uh, revolves around it. It was an absolute game changer. Yeah. I think we could do a whole episode on that. Yeah. But I think we'll have to leave that for another time, unfortunately. But I think this gives everyone a good start in terms of it doesn't have to be painful and make your system simple so that you can have complicated ideas and enjoy the process. You're allowed to enjoy it. You don't have to be a tortured writer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something that, I mean, I think everyone's read Big Magic at this point, but that's like yeah. one of my main takeaways from that is like, you're allowed to enjoy this. You know, this is your, this is your life. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like pulling teeth all the time. That doesn't make your work better. Um, yeah. Yeah. Suffering does not make it better. Mm-hmm. So thank you so, so much. This has been great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always am game to talk about organization, brainstorming, writing, all of it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing. Oh, train of thought. It's it's leaving me. I can feel it. The train has left the station. <laughs> no, it's gone. Never mind. Oh, no. <laughs> there was... Well, when you were talking... Oh, God. Now, mine might be doing the same thing. Um, I think they've, they've gone off. They've gone off on the same train. Um, oh, shit. It was good, too. Damn it. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> there, was, there was something about what you were saying about... Oh, my God. It really is gone. It's like a black hole. It's like a black hole. I'm sorry. I think mine might have triggered yours. It's okay. It's okay. It does. It, it happens all the time. Um, delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. I think um, ugh, stamp from the outside. <laughs> there was, yeah, it was something about stickers and stamps and people feeling good about themselves. I don't know. I think... I'm like, do we cut this bit? Do we not cut this bit? This is this is the, this is the bit that maybe people need to know about. <laughs>